welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your guests, Sasha Maldonado and Paige Brown. And we're your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. If you enjoyed listening to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, please let others know about us. Tell a coworker, a loved one, a friend, or share it on social media. Uh, we might reward your love for sen- with sending you a free koozie. So if you send us uh, an email to podcast at macfab.com and include the secret code word. Which we'll say sometime during the episode. Along with your address, then we'll send you a koozie. So keep your ears open for a secret code word. Oh, and also you, you did say to send a mailing address, correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Include your address on that because we have got emails where it's just like send me a koozie no just just the code word <laughs> yeah just the code word yeah so yeah please send your address uh we can't send you a koozie unless we have your address um so a few uh podcasts ago i presented a design challenge uh and and asked our listeners if they would like to participate and we've had astounding feedback on that yeah we've actually had a it was it was a really last minute thing for us i kind of threw it together right before the podcast and was just like ah, whatever we'll put it in here and it turned out really well it seemed like the listeners liked it so thanks a lot for all your uh, submissions we're going to talk about them in a future podcast it'll be in two weeks yeah we're gonna kind of dissect what uh, what other people have uh given in as the design challenge and what's interesting so far with our submissions or what we've heard from the listeners, I haven't seen two solutions that were even similar. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're really different, so it'll, it's going to be fun. Cool. So our guests this week are Sasha Maldonado and Paige Brown of Stanford University. Sasha is a uh, Stanford junior major uh, majoring in electrical engineering. He is the now-retired avionics leave of the Valbal Project and has been with the project since its inception. Sasha is now one of the... St- uh, student Space Initiatives, also known as SSI, co-president and working on electronics for an SSI build satellite payload. Uh, Paige Brown is a Stanford freshman majoring in chemical engineering. She is the mechanical engineering lead on the Valbal project and also helps manage flight control logistics. Outside of SSI, she works in an environmental engineering lab on phosphate pollution remediation in stormwater through chemical absorption you're way better at saying those words than me <laughs> i'm just reading like as verbatim as i can here <laughs> no no we, we tend to do that with our guests it, it makes it a little bit more fun to have it like that so yeah. did we miss anything from those descriptions guys i think we're good sounds good great to me. Sounds, sums it up about right so that was a mouthful let's let's kind of let's kind of unpack what's, yeah. what's in there so what is the val bal project um, so kind of the kind of the purpose behind the Valval project is to control the altitude of a latex balloon. So, um, you know, the latex balloons that we're talking about are a lot bigger than your average party balloon. Um, so that when they're when they're blown up on the ground, they actually stand about oh like seven feet, eight feet tall, about as big a uh, you know cross. Um, so these are huge balloons, and usually um, these high altitude balloons are sent up to collect high altitude data, but they go up, they pop, and they come back down in about three hours. There's not enough, not really much range for altitude data collection. Are, are um, these uh, helium balloons? Yes, yes, they're filled with helium. Cool. Um, yeah, so what we decided is that we wanted to have um, something that could go for not just three hours, um, not just 30 hours, but maybe even 100 plus hours um, up high in the atmosphere 
flying along with the wind currents and collecting data as it goes. Um, and we also wanted to have it be low cost. Since latex balloons are, are low cost, especially compared to uh, other balloons like super pressure balloons, those can range like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's what mm. like Google Loon uses. It's not really an option how, for uh, researchers. How yeah. much is the balloon that they found at Area 51? <laughs> it's, it's made of aluminum foil. They, they, they broke it apart and made hats out of it, right? Yeah. I mean, it. <laughs> it's probably a so, free first come, first serve. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the reason it's called the Valval Project is because um, it uses a valve and ballast to control the altitude and to accomplish those long-duration flights. Um, so there's a valve on the bottom of the balloon neck uh, that opens and closes, releasing helium, uh, when you want to, when you want to go down or prevent it, the balloon from rising further, um, so you can equilibrate. And then on the bottom of the payload is a huge container of ballast, and we use uh, we use uh, biodegradable BB pellets that we drop out the bottom as ballast. And by reducing the mass of the payload, you can uh, go back up again. So you can fly along um, at about 14 kilometers up, just above where airplanes fly. Um, and you can do that for quite a long time, actually. Um, so recently, we we flew Valval in November, and it actually broke a world record for the for the longest duration flight by a latex balloon. Nice, cool. So I got a question on that. The ballast and valve setup is <laughs> how like when you like how fast does it change in terms of. Uh, like altitude, like what's the tolerance on your altitude that you can keep? Um, so we we typically have, it, it can vary by flight, but we typically set the upper altitude limit at about 15 kilometers and then lower altitude limit at about 13 kilometers. Um, but the way that the control algorithm works, it allows it to go, um, like it, it slows it down as it's approaching those altitude bounds so it starts taking actions um, like as it's approaching um, to try to to try to stay within those bounds so the the reason that we keep these bounds is number one because the FAA told us that we can't go where planes fly um, so so we have to yeah, stay above nice. uh, 12.25 kilometers um, well, wait wait, wait. Though, but there is one question I have from something you said earlier you, you have a yeah. ballast full of BBs and the FAA is okay with you just randomly dropping BBs from a really oh, high so, altitude? We, d we did the math. They're not going to hurt anyone. It actually works out so that the, the kinetic energy of dropping one of those BB pellets from about 14 kilometers is about the same as taking a tennis ball about an inch above your head and dropping it. So it's not going to kill anyone. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that? So, yeah, the... Um, so the, the upper limit is kind of set by uh, the ozone layer because we don't really want to fly in the ozone layer because it, it does quite a number on our latex balloons. It starts uh, breaking down the latex polymers. Oh, is, is, is that why most balloons explode when they go up high? Or is it the it's pressure? A, it's a pressure thing. So if you fill up a, a, lit, a party balloon or even, or one of our bigger weather balloons, uh, if you fill it up with helium, it will rise and rise and rise, and eventually it will, the pressure difference, the amount of, like, 
force of the gas inside trying to push against the atmosphere is going to get bigger than the amount of pressure that the balloon can withstand. Uh, the balloon would just stretch and burst. So the first thing we tried to just to first uh, get some extra length on our flights was to just to put on a valve. So before we had a ballast system, just to let out gas as we were going up, because you want to you it's it's really hard to uh, weight the balloon properly so that it will level off automatically because the, the amount of lift you have as you go up um, varies. And so if you keep it low, you can actually, if you get it really lucky, if you get really lucky or measure really well how much gas you put in the balloon, you can get your balloon to level off naturally. Like right before the latex bursts, there's this one point where it suddenly becomes stable, uh, where the latex like stops stretching. And so you stop getting extra lift and trying to go up and you'll level off. Uh, but that's really hard to hit. And it's particularly hard to hit if you're trying to carry a lot of weight underneath. Like you're trying to carry a scientific experiment or... Oh, batteries to last you a couple of days. Uh, it's uh, really so, hard. So to, does it kind of oscillate around that position? Uh, you can get it to if so. People of the people who held the previous world record, what they did was they f basically made one PCB with a solar cell on one side and a, a packet radio on the other side. And when they happened to be facing the sun and happened to be in range of a ground station, they would like send one ping saying, "Hey, here we're alive." Uh, yeah, but the whole their whole <laughs> payload was you know a couple hundred grams. And the way they did this was they got a really massive balloon and they put a really as little gas into it as they could and still let it rise. So it rose really slowly uh, and they wound up stopping really high in the atmosphere, like double our altitude. But the balloon naturally leveled off there. Like they managed to get everything to work just right. So the balloon so naturally they were settled. at like, what, 25 kilometers? They were 25, 30, somewhere in that range. Hmm. So That's pretty high up. Yeah, above a lot of the ozone, which meant that they were really fighting with ultraviolet because it just breaks down latex. So as Paige mentioned earlier, we try to fly below the ozone layer because that, mm -hmm. in theory, should extend the lifetime a lot. Both being below, meaning that you don't get the UV, and then not in it because uh, we, the one time we tried flying like towards the bottom edge, the ozone was clearly doing a number on the balloon. So how, how many times did y'all did take to figure out that it was the ozone eating your balloon? Or did y'all kind of know that down the road? So um, it was kind of it was kind of like reactive. We noticed that the balloons were were popping, and, and we noticed that especially like we, we were able to recover one of our balloons actually from the world record launch. And um, the latex is it's it's all stretched out, and it's actually more brittle. And um, so we we did some research into like what is up there that could be affecting it. Um, and one of those one of those one of those um, compounds is ozone. And as, what happens is the ozone, it, it's, a, it's a natural process called ozone cracking. And this happens like with car tires and stuff and like latex seals, um, you know, anything you leave outside or like around a source of ozone. Um, and the, the ozone like breaks the crosslinks in the latex polymers. So they start kind of becoming more brittle they don't stretch as easily they break more easily um and then that's how you have a balloon popping so we're we're trying to work on figuring out ways to modify the balloon maybe coat it in some sort of compound um looking into graphene but that's still <laughs> up in the air um, a graphene balloon that would be awesome <laughs> <laughs> um but that's kind of the the Val -Val material science division um it, we're, we're we're gonna 
try to try to get a longer duration out of our um, modified latex balloons, but still in the still in the works. I feel like we should throw some numbers on it. So the the previous world record you said with the super light payload was fifty seven hours and change. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually back in last June we hit seventy hours and change on one of our balloons, and then as Paige mentioned earlier, back in November we hit eighty hours. Wow, well done. Yeah, and y'all and all have it. Oh, sorry. I said y'all will have another launch coming up this Saturday, right? Yeah. That's correct. So yeah. What we have... hour rating are you looking forward to hitting this time? Um. So, actually, the the way that the trajectory is heading for this launch, um, it's going to be flying down across the southern United States, uh, and then after about about two days, it's going to cross it over into the Atlantic Ocean, um, down near South Carolina. Oh, it's um, going really far then. Yeah. So after three days, which is, you know, about where about where our last world record was a little over three days, it'll end up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So um, we're going to have to make the call um, during the flight if we if we think that it's valuable to get the data and let it fly over the ocean, because once it flies out over the ocean, it's not likely that we're going to get it back. It's likely going to. Yeah. Y'all don't have a drone ship, right? (laughs) No, (laughs) we uh, we know some people. Potentially, <laughs> um, but if it looks, if the predictions change and it looks like we have enough ballast to make it over the ocean, we might let it let it continue flying. If it if it makes it over the ocean, it'll land in Morocco. Oh, that'd be how many days will it take to get there? Uh, about five days, so that would be pushing it a little. <laughs> sounds like it. That sounds like a a shattering of a world record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we would. If it landed in Morocco, we'd get not only the duration world record, but also the distance. So what, what is the distance record then? Also Morocco. It turns out from, so the, our com- leading competitors, you could say, are um, the group here called the California Near Space Project. So they are the ones who built the little solar cell radio balloon. Um, and they so held the, the, the cheater balloon, right? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's there are a lot of people. Oh, man, there you want to make people, a flame war? Steven. Yeah, it's a flame war. I'm sorry. I don't know. That's already. I mean, the flame wars already happened on Hackaday. There are a lot of people who. Uh, are, are, is there like people in different camps in the different yeah, groups? Like the NASA people like, and the SpaceX people. <laughs> <laughs> there are different people in like trying to do different things with balloons. So there are a lot of people trying to set records, and so you'll get different people who build like these crazy tiny like 20 gram balloon payloads but they strap them to like special mylar balloons and they can fly them around the world for like weeks on end but now they all they pretty much all they do is say hey i'm here i'm a balloon and keep orbiting uh what we're trying to do we'll talk a little bit more about later what we're trying to do is i mean what we're trying to do is build out something that can actually fly experiments actually like it has like a sizable amount of mass you can just swap in or out and put you know a useful scientific experiment on board and get data out of it and again with the with the numbers just kind of explain more so the our payload without any um without any ballast in it uh is about like 1.5 to 2 kilograms um and then we typically add between four and five kilograms of ballast so that's that's about how that shapes up for like what it can carry um What's the uh, speaking of the weight? What's the limit for a spa- uh, a balloon like that under was it FCC not FCC uh, FFA, FFA regs FAA FAA one hundred and one. Uh, it's FAA is the farmers one, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. 
Uh, FA101, so you are exempt from the rule if you are below six pounds, I want to say. We are obviously, we are not below six pounds, so we, that's why we deal with the FAA. But okay. they've, they sign off on our flights. We tell them where the balloon is as we're going along. We, don't, we, don't, we can't carry like a full radar transmitter, like a full uh, black box like you see on planes. But we have good enough position data and a way of distributing it, and the FAA is happy. Okay. Awesome. So that, that actually sets you all apart from what most people are doing then. Yeah, most people fly, again, fly a lot lighter. So they, they're doing yeah. cool things. Like, they, they go way longer, and they, they'll fly around the world multiple times. But, yeah, we're hoping to be able to fly and then do something cool when it lands. Yeah. And the other, awesome. thing, is, the other thing is the cost. Um, since the latex balloons are only about, like, a few hundred dollars, and um, our, our system itself, Valval, costs about a few hundred dollars for all of the parts that go into like manufacturing it and um, electronics and ballast and just all the consumables. It, it ends up being a couple hundred dollars. So this is this is very low cost in the world of like high altitude ballooning, which I guess isn't a very big world. Is that going to be a new hobby? <laughs> for like eccentric hobbyists? <laughs> high altitude um, balloonists. I mean, you already do see that. You see the people sending like cake to space, the people sending like tweets to space i think there was a meat pie yeah british people sent up (laughs) (laughs) awesome um on on the on the i was going to say something about the cost but i can't remember anymore well i I, I, I got distracted by meat pie (laughs) (laughs) don't we all (laughs) i got a quick question about uh your ballast mechanism because i don't know i think that's kind of cool uh so you have a limited amount of of ballast right so once that's consumed it's it's game over right yeah so that's actually one of the limiting aspects for our flight duration and that's what we what what ended our flight um it was the last world record uh it it ran out of ballast and we couldn't control the altitude any longer we we had to just drop down and we couldn't correct for that um Mm. so we're actually working on um on making a more efficient algorithm so that it uses less ballast over the course of the flight. Because there's actually an optimum ballast usage. It's, it's limited, but there, there's, an, there's an optimum usage. Because you need every night, because um, when the sun goes down, the temperature drops. And so the buoyancy of the balloon also drops when the gas compresses. So you have to drop 10% of your weight every single night in order to stay flying. And then correct for that in the morning. Um, by venting, but the, as as you properly ascertained, the limiting factor is the ballast, and so that means that at minimum, at, at at maximum, we can go for however many days it takes um, to use up ten percent of our system weight in ballast every night. Um, but currently, we're not we're not at that optimum level, and there's a lot of random corrections during the day if it overshoots when it vents. Um, you got to correct if it's using ballast. If it gets caught in some turbulence, um, gets into a weird oscillation, you have to correct with ballast. And so that that is limiting our our flight length. And we want to get to optimal ballast usage so that we can fly longer. Because it's looking so at something like the a optimal, week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a week, at like maximum. So you could make it to Morocco if everything was optimal. Oh, we could make it to um, we could make it to like the Middle East. I think it landed mm-hmm. in like. But 
last time we ran the predictor for that long, it landed in like Lebanon or something. Um, hmm. yeah. And what do, you, what do you use for simulation? Um, we have a, a predictor utility online. From habhub.org, I want to say. Um, it's a group actually based out of Cambridge University. It's their balloon team. They built a tool that looks at uh, NOAA weather data, basically just wind data at different altitudes, mm -hmm. and does this cute little simulation. Uh, you know, each point in time, it looks at what is the local prevailing wind, and it'll let you track your distance, like track your trajectory, and it'll project out a couple of days. All right, cool. Um, one thing I was, uh, I, I just remembered while I was talking about the, the payload hardware that you said it was a couple hundred dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Is what's the chance of that, be, uh, you know, becoming reusable? So it's actually pretty high in the, in the world of research, that's jump change. Um, and it's, and it's also, um, has the potential to drop in cost, um, you know, as manufacturing techniques improve, um, as we like reduce the number of parts, make everything simpler. Mm -hmm. um, but it's right now it's about a couple hundred dollars. Um, we're, we're actually working on um, towards a goal of having a kit valve available. So so we, we make all the parts and it's just you assemble it, you put your scientific experiment in, and then you launch it. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the ultimate goal for, for this sort of project is um, making this accessible to, to any researcher. Mm -hmm. Say the earlier valves were very, uh, let's say, bespoke, uh, uh, you know, handmade kind of clutching in parts. And as we figured out what works, you know, we have a nice. We've been steadily reducing the part count, sort of like taking out things that don't need to be there or m merging pieces together to make one bigger piece. Uh, yeah. For instance, the the ballast mechanism, um, the, the ballast dispenser. Housing used to have, I think it was 16 different flat acrylic parts that fit together. It was a nightmare to assemble. And we recently replaced that all with one 3D printed part. So it's, it's just, it takes a lot less time to assemble now and um, just overall better. Yeah. So, it's three, it's three, the so how does the mechanism work then? Um, is it like, like a gumball machine. Okay, yeah. I, was, I was about to say, this is just shoot one pellet out at a time. Or, mm -hmm. is it, or was it just a, you know, a dump valve? But I figured the one at a time is a lot more accurate for y'all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rotating wheel that catches one ballot, uh, one one pellet each time it rotates and then steadily drops them. And it's nice because, again, because we can basically drop single pellets. We have super fine control on our weight because each of these pellets is like a quarter of a gram. Uh, so we can, and it's a surprisingly small number of them will get you a surprisingly large change in like the rate at which you're going up and down because we're operating so close to the point of just like floating along, being neutrally buoyant that if you drop, you know, if you drop below that neutral buoyancy point, you're going to start going down. Even if it's really slowly, you're going to start going down. So, right, but the equilibrium know, point is razor thin, right? Yeah. So, it, so which means that if you look at our trajectories, we do oscillate, but we do bounce between sort of the bottom of where we want to fly and the top of where we want to fly. Um, do, do, you, do you know what that distance is? It's about two kilometer yeah. down. Okay. Yeah. But, but so we get more and more efficient the slower these bobs are. So, you know, if, we, if, if we're bobbing up once every hour, you know, that's, we're wasting a lot of gas and a lot of ballast because every time we go up, we have to vent gas. And every time we go down, we have to drop ballast. 
So we can just get like a really gradual yeah, if you can, rise or fall. Yeah, I guess your optimal would be if you can stretch that over the entire day. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so I I had a buddy who was telling me about um, uh, some some balloon technology, where uh, instead of having ballast that you eject, it was actually a compressed tank that would just it was a closed loop system that would just fill the balloon or pump it back into the compressed tank. Based off, of, have you guys heard of that before? Sounds yeah. like what Google is doing. Yeah, and we yeah, we have considered what, that as that's what I was about to ask option. was like yeah that's what I was about to ask is you know what made y'all go with this design decision versus a, a system a more comp well it sounds more complicated you know recompressing gas or just or just having an onboard tank that can refill what you vented instead of a balance so, system. Yeah, yeah. So we have we have considered that, and it may still be possible in the future to switch to that, since it, it is kind of the more optimal system in terms of, of ballast usage. Um, but the problem is, it takes a lot of energy to compress gas. Um, Correct. So if we did, we we have um, batteries on board for powering the electronics, um, but I it's it's hard to it's hard to get enough power to just compress to run gas. A pump. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe so maybe if we pair that addition with like solar panels to run it, um, it might be possible. It's but it's definitely a more complex system to, to work out. And we we have to also um, kind of just yeah, yeah, like it's it would increase the weight. It would, um, but actually, yeah, if you're increasing the weight, but you don't have if you have unlimited ballast, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> one of the catch we did one of the one of the big catches we looked at when we looked at this previously is the scale. So Google the balloons, for example, the Google balloon uses carry like eighty kilograms of payload. Uh, so the onboard, all the onboard equipment is a lot heavier, uh, but it means that they can have you know a big pump because they have it's not that big of a fraction of their weight. Because we're we're a lot lower and getting a functional pump at the weights we'd want that could actually move gas in and out of the balloon at a rate that would be right, fast and, enough and to matter. quickly. Yeah, that's the big thing is that, you know, the scale of the balloon to the payload is pretty large. You know, there's a lot of gas. Right, so that dictates a huge amount of the design. Mm -hmm. And getting a pump in the right size, in addition to get the power, in addition to powering it, just getting a pump in the right size and the right weight is really hard. Yeah. Uh, cool. So while y'all were working on this project, like, was there, I know the UV stuff was probably, and, and ozone was probably unexpected, but... Was there anything designing like the electron? Like, actually, let's go into electronics that are actually on. You know, we're an electrical engineering podcast, so <laughs> let's talk about the electronics a bit that's on the board, um, if y'all can. Yeah, so we're actually built around um, because this is built by a bunch of people who background is all in hobby electronics. Uh, we started out with an is Arduino. It Arduino? Yeah, started with oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, we start. So we now we now sport uh, a Teensy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's yep. an Arduino. It's, it's Arduino compatible. Um, they're really nice. Um, and we actually so we used to buy dev boards and like solder them in. Um, we have a stack of custom made circuit boards. You know, we do our PCBs custom now with Macrofab. Uh, but we've been making our own circuit boards for a while now. Uh, and used to just solder these uh, Teensy development boards in, just bought them online. And now we actually took the reference design, basically just took all the parts from it and soldered them straight in, like embedded the Teensy into the system. Got a, 
couple extra I.O. pins because they're not broken out nicely on the dev board. Um, so and it's interfacing with that at the core, which it's it, you know, it's pretty beefy as a processor goes. It you can run up to like almost 100 megahertz on it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's an ARM Cortex M4, so it does quite a bit for us. Yeah, those um, are pretty uh, efficient in terms yeah. of uh, how many MIPS you get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what at the that's at the core. We've got a couple of motor drivers for the valve and ballast, which are, they're just at this point they're actually just DC motors. Uh, used to do servos and an encoder, uh, rather a motor and an encoder on the ballast side, but now they're just DC motors because we have characterized them well enough that we don't really need the feedback. Um, yeah, that, that makes that, it a lot, lot lighter as well. Yeah, that's a no. lot of empirical da data gathering in order to characterize a DC motor. <laughs> I mean, it's more like it's. Yeah, you know, they've we've said something like we've dropped, I want to say a hundred thousand um, ballast pellets in flight, without, uh, without jamming like without a terminal jam, the yep. wheel reverses every couple seconds so that it doesn't like build up a jam, but we haven't seen it lock out in flight. Great, uh, that's cool. And we there's enough of a range on the valve like mechanically there's enough of a range that even we do it entirely by time at this point and even with. Uh, just going off of the time it takes to open the valve, we get it open and closed, like sufficiently open and sufficiently closed that it, the fact that we don't have any good position feedback on it isn't a huge deal. Right. Um, so we have motor drivers. We monitor the current going into everything um, to guard against short circuits because we can disable things if they're, it looks like they've short-circuited. Um, we have an Iridium modem on board. So the I don't know if you're familiar with the Iridium constellation. Yeah, that's the uh, satellite module or satellite uh, system up there, right? Mm -hmm. There is a satellite communications network sort of arose in the 90s as a satellite phone company and have sort of been a little, still do a lot of that for the U.S. military, uh, but have also been reborn in a way for really short bursts of data from usually high-value assets in far-flung places. So like yep. uh, container ships have used these a lot because you can track, uh, you know, it, it's worth a lot. You want to know where in the world it is. Yeah, I've so actually played with their their module before mm -hmm. um, and sent a couple. It was one of those things like, woohoo, I sent bytes to space and woohoo, I got it back. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then I'm like, this is expensive to run. And I shelved the project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you, it costs a lot to go to space. But and it's actually... I did save those bytes on my desktop. There you so go. They went to you, space. You have your back. space bytes. Yeah, space bytes. And though it's just they're <laughs> actually just the bits on my hard drive, but it's the principle. <laughs> so Iridium is actually they're replacing oh, their I, entire satellite I, network. Uh, we could that that will uh, be the code word. Space bytes. Space bytes. That's right. Uh, excellent. So if if uh, if you email us Spacebyte with your address, we'll send you a Macrofab koozie. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We had to do our little bit there. No, we, we always forget to have a code word, and then we're and then Parker's always just like, "Oh, that." Yeah. <laughs> Will you accept any spelling of Spacebytes? That's my question. Uh, no, it's got to be spelt the the computer way. The Spacebyte way. Yeah, space the Spacebyte way. Yeah. So if you if you were listening and you just typed it in, make sure you got it right. Hopefully yeah. you didn't hit send. Or... 
Well, cool. Okay, so uh, how about um, well, Parker was going to ask this earlier, but and then he got all sidetracked on electronics. Uh, but uh, unexpected sorry. issues that you ran into with the project. Oh boy. Um. <laughs> these, this is where we always get into the juicy, juicy bits. Oh yeah, this is the good. projects because this this is the, the the part where everyone can relate to you. <laughs> oh man. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should talk about... Uh, Start with the Pacific one. The Pacific? Yeah. yeah. So uh, we've sent one balloon... Of all the balloons we've launched, we've only ever lost one balloon in the Pacific Ocean, despite the fact that we're in California, because the winds usually go to the east, like point to the east. Mm-hmm. So the story of how we got one in the Pacific uh, was on one of the very early valve tests. Uh, we were, we, the balloon was just a valve. Um, we launched it at night, Um we are driving to a hotel because our launch site's kind of far away. And so when we launch at night, it's a real pain to get back home. So we're checking into the hotel and we've seen that the balloon, you know, it, it, the vent has worked once. And so it's starting to level off. Uh, and then it's, it's supposed to go again. It's supposed to vent a couple of times and then it cut down. Uh, and only the first one worked and the, we never got the balloon back. So our best guess is that it froze, like that the system just froze shut. The valve, uh, valve shut? Yeah. And because of the way it was built, when it froze shut, that also, we think, broke the cutdown mechanism, which is basically like we had a spring that was going to try and push the balloon away from the payload. Um, and there was like a piece of string holding, like a piece of fishing line to be cut by a piece of nichrome wire. And we think that... The, the nichrome wire definitely cut because we have power data that shows the nichrome wire got run but we think that it froze stuck so even when it got cut the spring wasn't enough to push it apart um, so we were going to the east we are going to the east and but we start we started flying higher than we normally do so we, we crossed into like well into the ozone layer about 20 something kilometers uh, and it turns out that the winds up there start blowing to the west so we'd been going east and then arced back west, like almost making a beeline for San Francisco, which was terrifying. (laughs) Uh, uh, Fortunately, went south, then almost crossed over Stanford, which was, again, kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, what if it Uh, landed, like, right on top of your building? That would have been awesome. That would be incredible. (laughs) I think, actually, NASA has a prize for that, if I remember right. It's something like a multi-million... In the place that you launched it? Something like like a multi-million dollar prize if you can land a balloon in a like well-bounded box. You can say where you're going to land it. What if you just move the well-bounded box? Uh, anyway, it's still well-bounded. I, <laughs> I think you have to call Google in and ask. Call yeah. Google and ask. <laughs> can you imagine if you called so their we're... support line and you asked that the per- the level one tech support would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Hello, is this Google? Is this Google? <laughs> okay, so your balloon, your balloon, beeline for yeah. for the we Pacific, doing, right? No, we did a couple of loops just over the peninsula. Like, fortunately, not over anything frightening, which like really high up. Um, and then we wound, found at sunrise we were over the Pacific Ocean, and it looked like we were going to start coming back towards land, and basically land at home, like pretty close to Stanford. Uh, and then the sun came up, and we started going up, and we had no way of stopping because the valve had broke, and so we just popped in the Pacific Ocean. The thing fell into the water. And I would say oh. it was never heard from again, except actually we did hear from it again once, like six hours later. We got, like, one ping, 
and it was in the wrong direction for the ocean currents, so we have no idea how it got there. Huh. Uh, fishermen picked it up. How Co- far offshore was it? <laughs> uh, tens of miles, I want to say. Shark ate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's not the only Valval that's landed in the ocean. We've also had one in, landed the, in the Atlantic. That was um, the previous world record, though, that um, launched in June. That one was also had some issues with the valve. Yeah, that one. So I swear the valve works sometimes. <laughs> it's I feel probably 60 percent of the time it works 100 percent of the time is empirically accurate. Probably. <laughs> so that's the result. So what did y'all change on the design of the valve then to prevent that from happening? We've been we've been continuously iterating the the valve seal um, used to use um used to use like this latex we used to use like latex seal um with a like a teflon uh, fitting on the bottom um moved away from that because of the problems with degradation with latex um and so it was a brief period where we used um these teflon coated thrust bearings um but they were designed and manufactured with a hole in them and i had to like plug that with epoxy it was just it was really bad design um and so right now our current design is a teflon fitting and an an acrylic circle um which has to be extremely clean and extremely smooth and then um a spring underneath which allows for some stabilization um so the word's still out on if this one how how this one works because we're going to be flying it on saturday and it's never been flown before but it has been extensively tested on the ground um, through the very scientific method of um, putting our mouths on the balloon neck and blowing into it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask, is like, do y'all like, because um, I've done uh, like testing of, of electronics for like cold weather and stuff, and it's basically stick it in your freezer and then stick it in the oven for a bit and stick it back in the freezer, put it back in the oven, like temperature swings that way. Um, mm-hmm. So that'd be interesting if, if, I guess, the valve works at extreme temperature swings. Yeah. So actually, we, we have to do something kind of like that with our motors um, because the, the motors that we use, when, when, you, when they arrive, we get them off Amazon, um, the grease inside of them is definitely not rated for cold temperatures. And if you sent up a motor with just the regular grease in it, it would freeze and that would not be good. Um, so what we have to do is like degrease the motor completely um, substitute in a different type of, of cold grease and then we have a box of a styrofoam box of dry ice that we steal from the physics department or, and, wait no the chemistry department <laughs> we'll have to get that one right yeah. we'll make, sure, make sure we got that yeah, one right who's going to yes. show up with pitchforks tomorrow morning <laughs> right. uh, no, they, they're fine with us um, we, we stop by scoop up our dry ice and sketchily leave um, but yeah, we stick the we stick the motors um, once they've been greased inside the dry ice for like five minutes and and try running them to make sure that they're actually going to operate at the temperatures up in the atmosphere. Actually, uh, that's another challenge that we had to overcome was just how cold it is up there. It's like negative sixty degrees Celsius. It's um, mm. and that's that's way too cold for for batteries to operate. So, um, but we had do to do heaters? this. Actually, mm. yeah, we have some heaters, but like just having heaters alone wouldn't be enough to keep it warm. So we have to have some extreme insulation. Um, and so we actually have um, these aerogel blanket 
blankets that we use. They're aerogel composite blankets. And oh, have cool. you heard of aerogel before? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's like one of the like least dense solids. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And it's also it's, like a ridiculous insulator. Uh-huh. It's it's I think the best man-made insulator to date. Um, and the the blankets that we use are are these fiberglass composite blankets with like chunks of aerogel inside of them. Um, which are can you get those on Amazon as well? <laughs> I was about um, to ask. I've got a kegerator at home, and I could use some aerogel. How do I get a hold of that? <laughs> no, we should totally make koozies out of aerogel. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I wouldn't the, recommend it's, it. It's fragile, Actually, right? Well, it's not that it's fra- it's fragile when you have it in, like, the solid state. In the, the blankets aren't too fragile, um, but they are extremely messy. Like, the aerogel, like, especially when you cut it like some of the aerogel comes out in like dust and it gets on your hands and your clothes and like it's very difficult to get it's like cutting it is always an ordeal we actually have these like tyvek suits that we use to cut it because if it gets on your clothes it's just a pain to get off um so i don't recommend just like handling aerogel usually <laughs> also, to answer it sounds like we need, we need some koozie research here ways, <laughs> ways to actually handle it <laughs> to answer your earlier question or you get it, uh, buy aerogel.com. Trusted supplier. Really? Okay. <laughs> go figure. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> shows, shows that I've done a lot of research into this. <laughs> All right, cool. So um, I guess we're going to slowly wrap up this podcast, right? Yeah. Because yeah, we're closing in on the 45-minute mark. Um, so the launch this weekend um, – where can listeners that are listening right now find more about this launch? Because it's going to be live, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So we're most likely, I mean, barring tef- technical difficulties, we're going to be trying to uh, to like Facebook Live the launch. Um, and so that'll be at like 10 a.m. Um, Pacific. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, daylight. On- it's daylight time. What? It's got the time zone right. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, that'll be that'll be this Saturday, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, and additionally, if you'd like to track the balloon, we actually have this very cool website that um, receives all of our our communications, the satellite communications, parses them, displays the data um, in like a map, so you can see where the balloon is at the at the time. Um, and that is HabMC. It's uh, HabMC.stanford.ssi.org. StanfordSSI.org. Yeah. So, so I'll repeat that, uh, habmc.stanfordssi.org, and that's H-A-B-M-C, so standing for High Altitude Balloon Mission Control. Oh, we'll definitely put that in the podcast yeah. notes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So so also on Facebook, you guys are Stanford SSI, right? Mm-hmm. And on Twitter, it's at Stanford SSI. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I, should, I should say on the HabMC site, um, at the end, um, so there we have like a default view to the public. That's basically it's really just position and altitude right now. Um, but we have a couple of codes we'll set up every now and again for like to give you so you can see like Secret. everything oh, coming yeah. in. Yeah, so you have yeah. the normie so site and then the insiders. Yeah. Oh, the yeah, root codes. Slash, it's slash code slash macrofab at the end. Oh, oh. <laughs> thank you guys. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks guys. So, um, is there anything else? y'all have to add or steven i think i'm good y'all good over there yeah yeah I, do y'all want to sign us out it's that bold part at the bottom of this of the sheet sure okay so um 
that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, where we are your guests. Sasha Maldonado. And Paige Brown. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.